What's up, everyone? Before we start today's episode, I have to give a big, big shout out to Chris Bournet and his documentary, Lady Wrestler. Chris is an author and filmmaker whose research made this episode possible. You can find more about the movie at LadyWrestlerMovie.com or follow Chris on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S-B-O-U-R-N-E-A. Now enjoy this episode of Tim Bell Pod. Jake, when people pitch you, when non-wrestlers pitch you wrestling spots or gimmicks, is it the same as when someone tells you like a a zany story or like an obvious street joke and they're like, you can put that in your little comedy skit if you want. (laughs) Is it as as equally infuriating? Um, actually, I don't get a lot of people to come up with suggesting spots for wrestling. Oh, really? Because there's a little bit more respect to professional wrestling, obviously, than stand-up comedy, for whatever reason. <laughs> or is it they just don't have the imagination? No, uh, what does uh, blow my mind is when people do stuff on a video game, and they send gifts of that. I'm like, you should do this in your <laughs> that, The thing that defies all physical abilities. That, or they get clips uh, from PWG of Ricochet doing stuff. <laughs> and they're like, is this what you do? That That's more of what I get than actually you should do this joke. Um, it's more of showing something that somebody else does. I'm like, you should do that. <laughs> all right. Well, I have a gimmick to pitch to you. Uh, stop me if someone has already done it or if it's so good that we should stop the podcast and I should call up George South and go get trained. I'm going to go with in between. <laughs> all right. A guy who thinks he has a tag team partner, but he doesn't. So he keeps getting in all these tag matches and just getting beat down the whole time. Or he'll try to he'll try to build like a hot tag Ooh, and like reach good. and there's just no one to reach to. Or like he'll set up for like the doomsday device. They never and just come off no the top. One comes on the top rope and then they roll him up and he loses. Or he reaches for the tag and it's a mannequin head. Oh wait, that's been done. It's been done. It's been debunked. Alright, welcome to Tim Pod where we discuss the life and deaths of professional wrestlers. I'm Nick Alexander in the Manning Cave, joined as always by wrestling nerd, film geek, podcasting podcaster, Michael Lovett. That was a lot of stuff you said. Way more stuff than what he actually does. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Human being. Thanks. We are also joined by a veteran of professional wrestling, the man scout, Jake Manning. What's up, brother? I'm all crippled up over here, tucking my thumbs in, because that's what shooters do. Sorry, you called me a veteran, so I was just playing the role accurately. I hate all this high-flying stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was just, I was just being Ethel Johnson over here. Just... <laughs> all right, thanks so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, leave, leave us a rating. You can follow us on the social medias at Tim Bell Pod. Find all our info at TimBellPod.com. So today, we're doing something for Black History Month, which uh, growing up in North Carolina public schools, Black History Month taught me that George Washington Carver was the first ever black person. 
He invented peanuts. That's right. And nothing else happened until Prince made Purple Rain in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, because did did something? No. We are more than qualified to talk about this topic. Good old South. Well, Iowa didn't do much better. I will <laughs> I will attest to that. Well, so. you can't. You still can't compete with us. So no, they're definitely. <laughs> yeah, you get quite the track record. We just didn't have anybody around. We're like, it's true. It's like, do isn't everybody white? That was kind of like that's the Iowa slogan. Isn't everybody white? Like that's our state. If you motto. teach Black history in the woods of Iowa, does anybody hear? Yes, that is truly the question. That is truly the question. Are there woods in Iowa? I thought it was all just fields. (laughs) Just just corn and Jake Manning. Right? All right. Maybe some of you saw an article that was being passed around the internet called The Forgotten Story of the First Black Female Wrestlers by Vice Sports. So we have to give a big shout out to Vice for sparking this flame and a big shout out to our own Megalomania for seeing that article and thinking we need to do it better. Yeah. And (laughs) thank you, Vice, for telling us about the one person who did drug once and how bad that drug affected their life. Thank you, Vice, for showing us how bad marijuana affected Uh, one person's life. We got heat with Vice? (laughs) Really? We will after this podcast. Yeah, good. I've got got three pages of notes (laughs) on Vice. Like, before we ever get into this conversation about some amazing women, I have to give a diatribe about Vice. It's going to rival your diatribe about Sable, okay? And then I want you to cut out your rebuttal to my rebuttal to Vice, okay? All right, so today's episode is going to be on three sisters. We're talking about true pioneers of professional wrestling and of civil rights. Three women who seem to be overlooked by history. They don't even have Wikipedia pages. No, they don't. Uh, What the hell? Nothing even came up when I asked Jeeves. So... 2005. (laughs) (laughs) But today we're talking about three of the first... African-American women's wrestlers, Ethel Johnson, Babs Wingo, and Marva Scott. Yeah, damn right. And quick side note, the first African-American wrestler was uh, Vero Small, who wrestled in the late 1800s. But that was a guy. And if I can give one more huge shout-out, uh, we have to give a special thanks to Chris Bournet. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, if you want to give like credit to Vice, you should give credit to, to Chris, because this podcast would not exist yeah, yeah, without Chris and his documentary. That's The, the amount of research that he did is, was vital, and the fact that... He even did a documentary on these ladies so that more people can be exposed to their incredible journey and everything they did. Like you said, it's very hard to find history, and this is an important part of history. It's it's non-existent in the history of professional wrestling, and it's non-existent in the history of America, and this story is vital to both. And not just Chris for making the documentary, but Nick reached out to him, and he let us watch a copy that he gave us a secret link type thing because we're cool people and shit, you know? <laughs> but uh, thank you for Chris for, he listened to one of our episodes like, you know what? These guys aren't total pieces of crap. So, uh, yeah, thank you not just for making it but for letting us see your your doc. And that documentary is called Lady Wrestler, The Amazing Untold Story of African American Women. And we got basically all our info from Lady Wrestler on that documentary. There's footage, there's sound bites, there's interviews with Ethel Johnson and the family members of Marva and Babs. It's awesome. You can find more info at LadyWrestlerMovie.com. Go see it if it screens in your city. And oh. good point. Vice didn't really give us anything because Vice is yeah, trash. Move away from that. If you, if you want to talk to anybody, talk to Ethel Johnson. <laughs> God, I... Ethel is the best. 
she is the best of this documentary. Like there are moments where like, oh, you, you're you're like every old time you wrestle. I don't know what wrestling does to people, but it turns them into into this. And and you see that one little like microcosm quality in all the all grizzled no, wrestlers. No matter what their experiences, no matter if they were a black female in the middle of segregation, they still they still end up exactly like an old timey wrestler. It's amazing to you me. Get, you could watch Ethel talk about something that wasn't wrestling and Jake would probably be like she used to wrestle <laughs> yeah like yeah she could talk about whatever she could talk about hooking up a television set or her struggles programming her VCR in the 80s and I'm like no you're a wrestler you can't fool me yeah, I, know I you. gotcha right in my sights no. I think we should probably since we are kind of uh, taking Chris Bernays name here we should probably do one of those quick read-throughs of the views and comments and swear words on this podcast does not reflect Chris Bernay and Lady Wrestler and any rebroadcast or account of this broadcast without the written express consent of Major League Baseball is uh, prohibited. Yeah. It's always Major League Baseball. It's always. <laughs> the NBA doesn't care. NHL, NFL, it's no. free. Free, uh, free game. Now, all three of these women are deserving of their own attention, their own episodes. However, there is not that much info out there on them so we combined it for podcasting sake in fact i don't know how educational this episode's gonna be we don't have any behind the scenes george south stories we don't have a catalog of wrestlemanias to mark out to we're more or less using our tiny tiny platform to bring attention to these three ladies because they're none of it exists well if anything else if, if, if the fact that this podcast exists and it causes another google search for Result, like I said, you, right. you 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 look up Wikipedia and you don't find either of these ladies. If nothing else, this will force people to look for them or find them or be more aware. There's if, if there's one or five people out there that are listening to this podcast and they now know about Babs Wingo, Ethel Johnson, and Marva Scott, then we've done our job, and sure. that and then hopefully we do it with. With honor and respect and with the least amount of curse words as possible. Correct, Micah? Fly! Yeah. <laughs> now, these women not only had to endure the brutal training, the hard traveling life of your average pro wrestler, they also had to deal with sexism in and out of the ring. And to top it off with the worst cherry ever, they had to deal with the intense ball of racism that was America in the 1950s and America before the 1950s and America after the 1950s. Yeah, no civil rights, no feminist movement. This was all before that. This was courage on a higher pedestal. So to get our story started, we have to head over to Columbus, Ohio. And at the time, there was a monopoly on women's wrestling. If you didn't work with Billy Wolf and his wife, Mildred Burke, you didn't work. Wolf did a lot of good for women's wrestling, taking it from a sideshow or an afterthought to a money-making, a drawing main event show on its own. Billy would team up with fellow wrestler and marketing whiz Al Haft. Al didn't care about women's wrestling. Like, he kind of viewed pro wrestling as a man's sport. And that's an actual quote. At the, yeah, like, yeah, he yeah. was like, it's a man's sport. Yeah. But if it was making money, I don't think he cared if it was two cats juggling, really. Yeah, because he was a white guy in the 1940s, so money was the, yeah. No, 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 it's more about he's a wrestling promoter. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, isn't that the same thing? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> but as a white businessman in the 50s, Billy would employ black women at the time when America, we still had segregated water fountains. 
which is a weird thing with the industry to think of women's wrestling in the 50s being the most progressive and even playing field. <laughs> How often are you like, wish it was like the 50s? Yeah. <laughs> and talk about snowflakes. But, I mean, God, separate water fountain, <laughs> snowflake city. Yeah, there is a sense of exploitation there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a sense of fairness. It's as if you work for Billy. People will come and see him. You work for Billy Wolf or you don't work at all. Yeah. And then after Billy Wolf and Mildred Burke's Monopoly broke up, it was then you work with Mula or you don't work at all. Exactly. And and it's just it's always been exploitive, mm-hmm. and then it haven't been able to break out themselves. So you, we could say it was progressive, but at the same time it was also exploitive as well. But if you think of these women getting paid well, paid work in the fifties, black women living a a very comfortable lifestyle in the fifties, and then you look at the roster in the eighties. There are no black women. Absolutely, and, and that's that, that's really kind of the, the the shift as well is the fact that there was an abundance of them. There's more, the merrier, and then also too, this was during a time that women's matches were special attractions, and yeah. you could look at that as a negative connotation. But since it's a special attraction, it would demand more money than your typical men's match on the card. Now, obviously, you'd only have a woman's match go around the, the territory for like two weeks, and then they would go to another territory and then cycle around, and they'd be moving around a lot. Demand but, more money as in the ticket price or demand more money the, the as booking, in who's... Yeah. The booking. And right. that's because the, they're a special attraction, because right. they always talked about women's matches, little people matches, and Andre the Giant. Mm. They, they were always... <laughs> well, they were know. special attractions, and you'd only have them come through every couple of weeks. So you'd have one week where you'd have the women come through, and then they would, they would go through the territory in Memphis and then they would go down to Florida or then they would go down to Georgia and they would they would move around but since they're special attractions they're demanding right. they, they're able to demand more money than they would if they were just a woman working in a territory every yeah. single week 365 yeah, yeah. days out of the week so there are some advantages to being the special attraction as opposed to like oh look at you buy a lady over here she's gonna <laughs> wrestle in a ring a lady wrestle can you believe that <laughs> as, as you know derogatory as that is it does demand more money now how much of that money ended up directly in the women's pockets yeah, or course. not is yeah, yeah. aside the point but they, they do can't afford themselves a considerable amount of living in, in the 50s, far more than we could expect. We touched on this in our Brickhouse Brown episode that back in the day in men's wrestling, white promoters wanted a minstrel show character. They wanted a negative stereotype. But Billy Wolf, he, he didn't care about race, and he had a formula for his workers called Sex, Muscles, and Diamonds, which sounds like a 50 Cent album. No, which sounds like what I want to put on my Tinder profile. Like, that's, <laughs> that like Billy Wolf is correct. Uh, that is what I want in a woman. Like, that, all of those, when I heard that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I've been looking for all my life. I've just never had it boiled down to just three words. Thanks, Billy Wolf. So, Billy wanted beautiful women, but unlike, say, 90s women's wrestling, he didn't stop there. Uh, He wanted his wrestlers to be good at, wait for it, wrestling. What? Who would have thought that would work? Uh, He wanted great, believable athletes. And on top of that, he wanted women who worked for him to walk around town in a very classy, sophisticated way, comparable to maybe the way uh, Bruno San Martino would conduct himself. Well, and also, too, I should bring up that they're wrestling in a time where not every territory has the power of television. Um, I remember a 
interview we conducted with Mark Lewin, he, he talked about like the pre-TV era of wrestling and the formula for basically that was, was, was this. You would have Gorgeous George. He would come into a town two, three weeks early that he was wrestling at. And Gorgeous George would go into female beauty salons, which was a big no-no. Like you wouldn't see a man walk into a female beauty salon and you want his hair done. And he would, the whole time he was there, he would be rude. He would be <laughs> demanding. And then when he would leave, well. he would say, you know, cutting remarks like, oh, this is the worst cut I've ever gotten. And then not tipped whatsoever. And then left. So then that woman that worked on Gorgeous George all day and slaved over him and dealt with all his demands. And she, and and of course, right before Gorgeous George left, he goes, oh, I don't know how I'm going to wrestle yeah, yeah, two yeah. weeks from now in your arena. And then- At 7.30 p.m. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then that woman would go home, she would get at the dinner table, and the husband would be like, how was your day? Yeah. And and she would talk about like, oh, there's this, there was this wrestler that came Word in of and, mouth, got, man. Word and, of got, mouth. and he was just, he was just annoying and the worst human being ever in the worst client. I don't know what this man was doing in a, in a female beauty salon. And the husband would be like, well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> you know who, you know who came into the hardware store today? There was, there was, I ran into a wrestler. Well, he, I named into, ran into a wrestler named Mark Lewitt nicest man ever and matter of fact he helped me unload wow. a truck when it showed up oh my god That's then they amazing. would open the newspaper mark lewin's fighting gorgeous george in two weeks from I now i want to see him beat his ass and that's kind of how it works so when you have that's brilliant so when you see these female wrestlers walking around and i'm sure they were dressed the nines everywhere they would go to these bars and they probably you have these men come back like oh who are you yeah. what, what, what do you do and and you know who's Keep it up with you. And she said, well, I'm just in town wrestling and I'm actually wrestling the next week. So I'm sure a lot of that was going on and he wanted them going out, walking around, interacting with the people in the town of the territory so that way they can get people into the arena that want to see these women. Oh, you wrestle? Oh, I've got to see that. I mean, that's something that even happened to every female wrestler that I've ever dated. She's always been able to get all of her coworkers to come out and see her wrestler. <laughs> yeah. I've never been able to get anybody. I barely could get you two schlubs to come out to a wrestling show. Jake's like, hey. it'll be free. We're like, I. Yeah, exactly. But she would get 20, 30 of her. It's just the it's just the idea of females well, wrestling like, and it's all like that. door to door. It's like politicians on the on the ground just going door to door and just putting their word out just one person by one person just like spreading word that way i mean that's commitment man billy was a good businessman but before we classify him as this progressive hero this uh undercover feminist fighting the patriarchy we have to note that billy was a enormous shitbag yeah. uh, he deserves credit for integrating women's wrestling and you know what he did for it but uh there are some truths and rumors about Billy, including good old-fashioned chauvinism, sexual misconduct, keeping the bulk of the money. He cheated on Mildred a bunch. That, uh, yeah, uh, rumors of physical abuse as well. He would play uh, poker with the women that he paid yeah, and then yeah, take yeah. the money back from them. I mean, that's the biggest, oh my gosh. But that's, that, but that's the duality. <laughs> yeah. Always. You, and of it, course. It's like, is he being progressive and finding ways for... African-American females and, and all women of all shapes and sizes and, and different backgrounds. And is that because he has a good heart or is it because he has such guilt for he realizes how big of a dirtbag he is? And it's also he knows the image to create when it's pro 
productive for him, when it's financially ad advantageous for him. He knows the image to create and put out there at moments when it matters. And then when there's not as many eyes on him and he can do his little backdoor whatever stuff, then he can do that as well. It's kind of like Vince McMahon, where look at what he did for pro wrestling, and also look at the trail of bodies he left in the wake of well, it. You can also look at um, Harry Saltzman and Albert Broccoli of the Bond franchise. They, um, for years, the James Bond films have just been full of misogyny and yeah. poor interpretations of women. But when they got to live and let die... A lot of the American distributors were like, hey, uh, we can't play Live and Let Die because James Bond kisses an African-American female. This oh, won't play in the yeah, South. Mm -hmm. And Harry Saltzman and Albert Brock we were like, nope. Well, guess what? It won't play in the South. That's, oh, my God. So they, that with Yafit Kodo? Was that the villain? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. So, so even though they had such uh, God, backward ideals so about females, up. they had these very super progressive and right feelings about the way... <laughs> interracial relationships and their feelings towards them during a time when the South did not feel the same. And they stuck, stuck to their guns about it. History is full of guys that have opened doors while at the same time, too, keeping a knife behind them. I was going to say, we, could, we were, were given specific examples, but that is the entire history of everything, I think. That is just like to get one step forward and to get ingratiated with certain groups and how things progress, but then to also really reap the benefits and how to take advantage and of it. And the people that are caught in this hurricane are Babs, Ethel, and Marva mm -hmm. at, the, at the same time, too, as we discuss this whole set of circumstances. They're caught in the middle. All they want to do is provide for their families. Yep. And it was under Billy Wolf that Babs and Ethel would start training and wrestling. Ethel started around 15 years old after watching Babs, and uh, she would just go to practice after school each day. Well, the, and then I read one article where Ethel was even, she was in the gym at 12 years old. Yeah. Like, yeah. she was in there working out at 12. <laughs> like, What? They'd start out wrestling at Memorial Hall on Broad Street in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Ethel and Babs debuted around 51, with Marva joining around 54. And like I mentioned before, concrete facts on these women are hard to find. So a year is really the best we can do. Speaking of not knowing things, Ethel never told her kids that she was a wrestler. <laughs> yeah. And they randomly just saw her on TV. Uh, can you imagine flipping through the channels and seeing your mom giving someone a hurricanrana? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like they're talking about they're, they're down in the basement and uh, they just they leave it on some wrestling show. They're doing whatever. And then all of a sudden they, and they're like, oh, God, it's mom. <laughs> like, oh, oh, man, mom's on TV beating up a woman. <laughs> Pretty amazing. So these ladies would be billed as Negro lady wrestlers or color girl wrestlers. I don't know if I can say those things. They would travel not just all over America, but around the world. Ethel was usually a face and she was more of a fast paced high flyer for the time. She was possibly the first uh, woman to ever do a standing drop kick. And remember, this is the 50s. Leaving your feet in a wrestling ring usually got you burned for being a witch. Well, and especially, uh, not only that, but like the wrestling rings back then were 
pseudo boxing right, rings, yeah, and yeah. you wouldn't want to leave your feet yeah, yeah. On, on those rings. Like that's why a body slam was a finish at one point in time <laughs> yeah, because right? you were finished. Oh, no, I remember Ric Flair. I think Ric Flair's one of his first matches. He won with a suplex, and I remember being like, "That's stupid." Not if you took that bump, <laughs> yeah. I would have been done as well. It's like going up that high and falling that hard and that that impactful. Like, yeah, that's a finish. So Ethel also used a flying head scissors, which is wow. for men or women at the time very uh, innovative. Uh, she also used the atomic drop. Mm. So Babs was the biggest of the three. She was usually a hill. She was more of a powerhouse bruiser. She- I can't. I can't imagine the heat she got to just. Picking up from her sisters, the type of person he was, I could just see her beating up a fan favorite like like a Mildred, yeah. and just reveling in the anger. Even probably if they're running running in a southern town, the racism that exists oh, yeah. and just soaking up that hatred. I I can only imagine how much Babs enjoyed every second and every emotion she was pulling out of people. And uh, to round out the three, Marva was a little more similar to Ethel, maybe a little more chain wrestling, a little more high spots, and apparently loved playing up the I'm better than you hill gimmick, which is you know, timeless. Bread and butter. Well, and also backing up in these women's training, they, they talked about uh, making them do tumbling and judo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like that's. Yeah, Ethel talked about doing judo before she even got into wrestling. I mean, here, that's what I do. Like, Ethel's just like, yeah, I roll. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> like, I got a gi. What's up? Yeah, exactly. Like, Ethel just going on Joe Rogan's podcast <laughs> <laughs> talking about the Kimura, you know? Like, <laughs> I had a Peruvian necktie on this son of a bitch, and he was like, what? Yeah, and yeah, Ethel talking toe to toe with Eddie Bravo about <laughs> jujitsu. Eddie's but, too busy talking about the moon landing being fake but whatever yeah but but at the same time too it's it's body control that's like a big part of that and for them to recognize that and understand that like i can only imagine these women in their primes if they got to hold you in a certain way like you you'd be in some serious trouble yeah so they were making all these towns and for a lot of crowds this was the first time people were seeing black athletes at all it was just in 1947, a handful of years earlier, that Jackie Robinson came along. This was an era when Bob Cousy was doing granny shots from like 15 feet out. That and was then Rick Barry. here comes Bill Russell dunking on people and everyone's just <laughs> like, what was that? So these women were different and exciting and more athletic than a lot of even the men. And to compete with the men on cards, they worked very stiff. They hit hard. Every night they had to go out and try to outshine the guys. If you're judging by today's standards, at the time, the women were probably better actual workers than the men at the time. Their matches were way more fast-paced and fun and, you know, a lot more moves, a lot more high spots where the guys were punch, kick, punch, kick, body slam. You could get behind your laurels a little bit. And that's the thing, too, is, like, I've always empathize and try to understand the plight of the female professional wrestler like in all phases of it and yeah like like i can't tell you how many stories of women that i know just crying their eyes out because they wanted to book them in a bikini contest as opposed to just letting them wrestle And, you know, the Sarah Del Rey's, the Mercedes Martinez's, and, and a lot of the other girls, those are just the ones we know about. There's, like, multiple other girls that were wrestlers, wrestlers that can't even do it anymore because their bodies are just broken because they were 
trying to prove they were just as good as the men and this sport and how progressive it is now hadn't caught didn't catch up with what they were doing and there were so many girls like like mischief allison danger girls that shimmer yeah the con like the regular professional wrestling fan who love the female athletes we have right now you'll never know those names because they were striving so hard for just respect and then you look back even to like the 80s and what all the women had to go through then and then you flash back to 1950 and the roads aren't as good you definitely don't have gps you have to have to deal with all these things on top of sexism and then you take these women like marva etha and babs throw racism in there too so i, don't, I might get murdered at any moment <laughs> I, I i just i don't all of these things you, you it keeps keeps getting crazier that a human being was able to be sane mm -hmm. after all of these struggles and were able to do it it just goes to the strength of these three three women i just i, I don't know how it's pretty insane. yeah they, they always they always say that that god won't give you anything that you can't handle and these three women can handle just about anything because i because like i said i know i know people that can't handle the grind of professional wrestling even now, yeah. I, let alone doing it in the 50s and then adding sexism, racism on top of it. Every disadvantage you can have in the world. Yes. And that's the thing, like making it in pro wrestling is already impossible. It's already hard enough. And for them to not just uh, overcome that, but have very successful careers is is nuts. And that's what I think, too. A lot of a lot of these women got into it to provide for their families. Because for whatever reason, they're a single parent home yeah. and they've got to take yeah. care of the kids and they have to find a way to make some money as opposed to working for a factory. They and became good money. Yeah. Professional wrestlers. Money. Yeah. And so, so when I hear some of these young kids <laughs> that get into a ring, right, is in their last appearance on the Indies before they go to NXT and they get on the microphone and they say things like, I've been working for four long years. <laughs> it is very hard for me to bite my tongue and not be bitter about that and it's this podcast is making it even harder <laughs> doing so because yeah uh, i'm thankful that everybody has a wonderful opportunities i am thankful that we've gotten over a lot of stuff i still think we have there's a lot more we have to get over and i don't think that some of the stuff that's being done that is progressive is is genuine it is has a little bit of exploitive nature to it because there there is de there's definitely more dollar signs in it and they're oh. realizing it and that's why they're doing it essentially not because they're good human beings uh but i'm most certainly glad that at least the ship is pointing in a much better direction and i feel like it's important to know the history of the events prior so we don't go backwards i feel like it uh, in a weird way it has to be exploitive in a way to make the baby steps because there's no way it's just going to make this big massive jump it's going to be baby steps where it is progress but it is still exploitive but then other people sink in and make it something more important and better and it's just the natural progression i think it's it's not going to be immediate i think that is a what you see in wwe today is how they're pushing female wrestling so hard and it's completely dollar signs and keeping up with the times and exploitation but still 
Charlotte Flair is probably going to headline WrestleMania. Yeah, and her is, and Rousey are probably yeah, gonna, yeah. That's nuts. It, it is, but that's what I'm saying. It has to be that. Cause, I mean, I just don't see how it'll be a massive jump. It's in the right. It's in the right direction, maybe for the wrong reason, but still they're getting the benefit from it, and that counts. And then from that, I think you can start building to. Well, I mean, it's like more genuine. But this, but, this, but then it adds to the pressure. Of those performers, you talk about you know Charlotte Flair probably being main event of WrestleMania. The the pressure that's on her, she knows that she has not just the pressure of her career, but all these other women's the careers thirty that, years yeah. uh, that have come through. So you could imagine the pressure that Ethel and Marva right. and Babs had is like if we mess up, they're gonna say oh, that's that the was... way those black females are. Right, right, we right. can't train them to wrestle. Yeah. And, and and that's that's everything that a black woman has to deal with every time she does something is, is she has to recognize that oh if this goes bad people like me will not have the same opportunity and it's just that's how they are that yeah that's how they are and they, they, that's that's the responsibility that they carry around with them every single day but i mean it's, it's to make it a big point it's like the civil rights movement and any of that the only thing anything changed is because they fought so hard and pushed it it wasn't because everyone in power had this revelation like oh we need to have yeah, things yeah, yeah. better it was like it was uh, they they got forced into that point where they like oh okay and then progress in the small microcosms came out of that but it's not just white men are not just going to be like hey you know what <laughs> i have too much money and power <laughs> would you like something you got to win them over with the money and then you get in there and then you mm. All right, so let's run through uh, a couple highlights of their careers. Uh, in 1952, Johnson, Wingo, and Kathleen Wembley took part in a main event tag team match that set an all-time gate record at the time uh, for Baltimore with 3,600 fans. Boom. That's sick. In 53, Babs was given a title shot against Mildred Burke, who had the title for literally, I think, 20 years, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in front of 9,000 people in Kansas City. The first interracial championship was yeah. how it was promoted. <laughs> and uh, 54, they were drawing 9,000 fans in Kansas City. And Johnson and Wingo were getting top billing. And they were just being rivaled by people like Gorgeous George. One of the biggest names in wrestling of all time. And one of the biggest uh, pricks in the female uh, hair salon industry. <laughs> just to let you know. The list is long, but the he's, definitely, long, but he's definitely in the top. They're, they're, he's in the top three for sure. <laughs> so by 55, they were averaging roughly $300 a week, which is about $2,700 in uh. today's fake money. <laughs> so it's safe to say they were crushing it. They were among America's top paid black athletes, joining people like the Harlem Globetrotters and Joe Lewis, who they all hung out with. They were all like a big community together, which is awesome. Hey, we're all rich. Well, and they all <laughs> kind of understood each other's struggles. And and there were definitely struggles, especially touring through the South. And I remember a conversation I had with uh, Jimmy Walker uh, one time when I was emceeing a show. and he was talking, talking about Dynamite. Yeah, Jimmy Walker Dynamite. <laughs> okay. And he, he was talking about like the Chitlin circuit and how tough that was and how like black people had to sit on one side of the room and white people had to sit on the other. And they would tell like the temptations or whatever act that they had out there, like whatever you do. Do not look at the white side of the room because if you even have if, if anybody on the white side of the room thinks that you even like glazed at wow. his at his wife, wow, that or if your pelvis 
is even in the direction of the white <laughs> side of the audience. They think you're pointing it in the direction of their wife, and then that could get you shot at the end of the show. I mean, Emmett and then, Till and stuff. So, and, then, and then also, too, the promoters would just take the money and then leave. And they're like, oh, what are these black people going to do? Are they going to go to the law? Yeah. In Montgomery, Alabama? I mean, Screw you. Yeah. I'm taking the money and I'm leaving. So, if you're so, a horrible person, it's a good racket. And they and they would do multiple shows a day and it'd be it'd be set up like that. And yeah. So like so obviously like they, they you know they're making money and they're they're coming back to their communities and they're probably well respected and doing well off, but then they could also talk about the struggles uh in the tougher parts. And these women's wrestlers didn't have Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson in their corner. Like, you know, you screw over the Temptations. You have Motown to deal with. You screw over a, a black pro wrestler. Oh, well. But by the end of the 1950s, Ethel, at least, was working with white women's wrestlers, including legends such as June Byers, Penny Banner, as well as working in NWA territories. She became a favorite of Stu Hart in the late 50s, working for his big-time wrestling and uh, before it was renamed Stampede, as well as working for Vince's grandpappy, Jess McMahon, in Capital Wrestling. Hmm. So the majority of their work was done in the Midwest and in Canada, and it seemed more or less as a safe space for people of color and for women's wrestling in general. Places like California banned women's wrestling altogether. Which is funny. It, it bans women's wrestling. California now... Is the most liberal... <laughs> progressive state in the entire union. Yeah. Which actually, California is the site of my favorite story uh, in American history. Ooh. And it kind of ties into our whole conversation and the theme of what we're talking about. Uh, my favorite story in American history is this. California banned women's wrestling. But also, too, at one point in time, California was an open carry state. <laughs> I like this already. And everybody <laughs> everybody just didn't question it. Like, yeah, sure. It's America. We should have the right to carry a gun. It's <laughs> Second Amendment rights. Yeah, sure. No, everybody, really easy, just buy a gun and you have the right to yeah, carry it. Muskets not a big deal. Yeah. Or, no, well, this is like even like in the <laughs> 60s and 70s. Like, yeah, you can carry handguns. You can carry rifles around. It's America. We have the right to carry guns around. What's the big deal about this? And nobody thought anything of it in California. Nobody had an issue with it. Nobody thought to overturn it. It was never a part of the debate. And it was just, just like that. They, California was an open carry state until... The Black Panthers found that out. And the second they found that out, they're like, okay, we're going to carry guns. That was the same second the California legislature like, we need to change this law immediately. And the NRA was like, eh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do we do here? Uh, oh, man. What, what are you again? Well played, black people. Oh. Well played. So I'm just saying. It makes me laugh every time it I think about it. It's pretty amazing. It, 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 it just makes me giggle inside. <laughs> like, I, just, I just love... I just, I love that. <laughs> so uh, not only did California ban all of women's wrestling, a lot of famous venues in New York banned it. Madison Square Garden uh, banned it. A lot of women's dreams were to perform in Madison Square Garden. Well, that's like Couldn't the pinnacle yeah, of every entertainer yeah, ever yeah. is Madison Square Garden. Comedians, musicians, everybody. Madison Square Garden. That's like, you know, that's the always the joke. Oh, you think this is Madison Square Garden? Like, yeah. that's... That's what it is, you know? It's yeah. what Dana White been trying to do forever, and he finally did it with stupid UFC. Yeah, they let the New York Knicks play there. Know, right? <laughs> Patrick Ewing had a good jump shot. <laughs> and then you had the South, which gave women's wrestlers, and more specifically African-American wrestlers, a billion more problems to deal with. You know what, and 
I like the African American studies professor that was on this documentary. That yeah, we saw. he was great. He was he yeah. was great, and he brought up a point that I'd never thought of, and I think it was a well thought out point, and it definitely made me think a lot. Was he was saying that the Klan gets too much credit? He goes just white people's prejudice <laughs> yeah, yeah. in general. Yeah. People. Th- assumed it was okay i mean you talk about like just a redneck group that wore hoods what about the regular people walking right walking the street that were just average everyday people that don't think the races should mix yeah i mean those those are the people you're dealing because the culture at that point it was okay you didn't have to put on the hood so everything everyone was a potential murderer everyone was a potential assaulter yeah whether whether they're you know the clan of obviously they're probably at 95%, but that person walking the street was probably walking around at a 5% yeah. of racism. Yeah. But if they saw the wrong situation, they would feel like they, in their right that they could go to 100. And I think that was the point. Because it would be a bragging moment. It was like, oh, did you see what he did? Well, I did so-and-so. And, yeah. Black wrestlers often had to stay in the homes of other black wrestlers or entertainers when they were traveling through the South because of white-only policies at hotels. There was a time at a traffic stop when a police officer pulled a gun on Babs. And I mean, a police officer unjustly pulling a gun on a black person. What is this? A day of the week? Oh. <laughs> Even for the white girls who traveled with them, there were there was a lot of danger because they could go to jail just for being in the same car as a person of color. Well, and that's what I think, too. Like when I, I listen to female wrestlers talk about like traveling like i remember when tracy brooks used to talk about when she would travel with odb and they obviously they weren't making a whole heck of a lot of money so some of the hotels they'd stay at would be rather suspect and obviously like the door locks don't work all that well so they they told me many stories of staying in hotel rooms where they would take all of the furniture and put it against the door In case somebody did try and break I in, know. especially because they know they're checking in and they know the, the checking guy was kind of sketchy. So he knows that there's only two females. He can call in up there. his buddies. Yeah. And, I mean, race mix, the whole race mixing BS was a real thing where they were so smart that they thought that mattered. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, definitely. But yeah. And then you talk about, you know, Babs getting a gun pulled on her. It also, too, wasn't there like one after like a show or something like that? I think it was documented in the story. He like, said that uh, they they made it seem like he saw her in her match and didn't like her in the match. Match, and then and, and as then she was leaving, as she was leaving, he pulled her over and pulled the gun on. Okay, her. And his brother uh, stepped in. He was another wrestler. Another yeah, yeah, wrestler, yeah. and, and that's, why, that's what I wanted to get into. Is is one thing I gotta say about wrestlers <laughs> is wrestlers get a lot of shit about a lot of things. You know, they get a lot of grief. They get a lot of, you know, like, oh, you guys are this. You're just a bunch of steroid, drug-using, self-centered, you know, pricks. But I'll tell you what, and I'll stand by this. Pro wrestlers are probably some of the more liberal people I know. There's a few bad eggs. I'm I'm not discounting that. And there's even some older generation guys that I feel like have have some blind spots. But for the most part, I think professional wrestlers are, are probably the more liberal people out there. So if anybody was being as welcoming and accepting to, you know, Marva and Babs and Ethel's plight, it, it would be the wrestlers in that locker room. And that's why you talk, you know, like the Sheik would come over and hang out at, at these these girls' houses. Like just Sheik, the guy who keep, keeps kayfabe and tries to even stay away from the boys a little bit. Yeah. He's like, no, you, got, you guys are cool. I'm going to hang out with you. Yeah. You know, and just <clears throat> understanding that if you survive the training, you survive the travel... And you get in and you entertain the people, 
it doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter where you're from or what you believe in or who you are. You're you're one of us. You're all family. And it, and especially like the starting off wrestler. Like if you can carry a ring pole, <laughs> you're all right with me. Right. Are you are you going to help me yeah. get this all this stuff set up so we can open the doors and make some money? Yeah. Then you're all right with me. And that, and I think that's just kind of how professional wrestlers are and that's why they were so welcoming and and, and this was able to happen and and they talk very favorable of you know boba brazil and all these other yeah. wrestlers it just there's the camaraderie there yeah. as long as you can do this job and you can survive it you're one of us regardless yeah, totally. of who you are and that's totally, man. that's why i'll stand by that statement personally i can kind of relate to that because i grew up in monroe north carolina uh, specifically mineral springs literally one traffic light and in a conservative household now my parents have no hate in their heart they're not really engaged politically but you know i went to a redneck high school very right wing and i but i played basketball my entire life and you know it was having black teammates and black best friends from the time i was a little kid and going through all those wars with them running suicides until we threw up together it was like you know you don't at that point not to use this stupid white guy cliche is like you don't see color but it's like it's the camaraderie we're just people you know like this is hard for him like it's hard for me and we're going through this together and we laugh together and we cry together and we you know we play we we did this thing and we were just people and you know race didn't matter and I feel very lucky to go through that. And it's the same kind of camaraderie that more people should experience. Instead of just hating someone, you should look at them and be like, we're just two dudes like in traffic. Why are we so mad at each other? You know, like, and, that, and that's the thing that's, that's you know, interesting is the transformative power of sports. You know, sometimes in these more closed off areas of the country the only exposure they have to people of color is through sports yeah, i was gonna say a bunch of i bet a bunch of kids watching ethel's first matches was the first time a kid saw a black person at all yeah i mean really it probably was yeah. especially for this time and in the and that just the, the power that it has within it is the camaraderie as well as the exposure to people you know there's there's it's, there's a very powerful thing to sports and, and people refer to people in athletics as meatheads and jocks and all this thing but there's a certain sense of camaraderie that we see that wish the rest of the world saw or i wish we all felt the way we did when we were running suicides in gym class yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. Hey, why can't we all just get upon that same platform that we're all going through our own struggles and uh, you acting the way you are in traffic is because you're going through your own set of struggles and I should just let you pass. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, man. I think you touched on athletics and camaraderie. I think I think it's it's even bigger. It's community. It's like I've worked on film sets. I've worked on movies. When you make something, when you're a part of something bigger and you're all contributing, when you all go through the same thing, that's when you really like find that bond. Because when you work on a movie, you're all finding that same goal. It's just like... If you're working on a wrestling show, you're putting up the ring, you're contributing to whatever. If you're tearing tickets or selling popcorn, it's all one goal, and you're bonded by that, and it's it's something pretty special. Well, and that's that's probably you know also too with movie sets. You're obviously you don't want to tell everybody, hey, we do this movie and this happens and this person dies at the end. <laughs> yeah. So there's a little bit of closed off nature to it. Yeah. Also in pro wrestling, because you've especially during the yeah. 50s and 60s and 70s, you're very closed off because right. baby faces can't be with heels and yeah. you're closed off. And like I said, for someone like the Sheik, who is this over-the-top character, 
you know, when he's out in the public, he That's still has true. to portray that. So I'm sure when he came over to Ethel's house, he'd <laughs> yeah, be like, all right, uh, I could just kind of just be Ed for a change, <laughs> you know, just hang out. Like, I'll buy the, I'll bite the pencil in front of the kid. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll still keep it just that for way. For once for my blood pressure not to be through the roof. Yeah. I'll just appreciate like it, it. I could just kind of hang out, you know, much like the Harlem Glo- Globetrotters can be like, oh, finally, we can talk. We can relax and not pretend like we're the best basketball players in the world. We're just playing scrubs. <laughs> but God, those Washington generals, boy, do they suck. <laughs> yeah. Those what? jobbers we wrestled. Jeez. Yeah, job- every time. One of my favorite stories, I did a book report about the Harlem Globetrotters in elementary <laughs> school. Sorry, and that's amazing, Nick. This team were being real racist towards them, you know, saying the N-word and stuff. So the Harlem Globetrotters just beat them like 250 to zero or something. Just <laughs> drugged the shit out of them. That, that story stuck with me like my whole life. But that's your favorite story of American history. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it involves the Harlem Globetrotters. They thought they were lesser than them and they lost 250. Yeah, I mean, they just, I don't know the exact nothing, number, but, but yeah. yeah. Just beat they, the wheels up. No, they probably had eight points, and the Globetrotters scored the eight points yeah. for them. And the other team was like, I thought you guys were like going to like play around with the ball a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, know so you, they, I, know, they, I know you're going to beat us, but I didn't realize, oh, wow, you're actually going after yeah. it. You're taking, <laughs> you're taking charges. You're doing the dirty work today, too. Like, you just like, and won the shit out of us. Yeah, like you, normally you're just supposed to like bounce the ball off my head and then come back and then dribble and then <laughs> and then just do a little layup. You're dumping, dunking on me hard. Why are all of you like Charles Oakley? Yeah. <laughs> You, you're shaking the finger at me like Dikembe right now. <laughs> so a big point where I guess things reached a fever pitch would be at the shows. So you have these black women wrestling or other black athletes on the show. Yet they would not let black people buy a ticket to come watch them wrestle. So it reached a point where a lot of them would just say, no, we're not going to go out. And then they would leave. So these women had to sacrifice their own money and waste that travel, which is, to me, God, when I drive four hours to a show, and just walk out. If you think you have a bad day at work, imagine having to carry the burden of an entire people with you every day. And the racism, it didn't end in America South. You know, they wrestled in Cuba where they would throw soda bottles into the ring. Someone even stabbed Babs with a broken glass. And then she grabbed him and beat the crap. Yeah. <laughs> not, just, not just grabbed him. She went into the stands, yeah. found him <laughs> in an arena full of people, <laughs> and then proceeded to lay hands on him. Even in Japan, Marva had to endure brutal racial slurs, hard shooting from the other women, and even had a run-in with a Japanese mafia, which... If you're a wrestler in Japan, probably going to happen. I mean, uh, Bob Orton Jr. dealt with it. <laughs> so, which the Japanese mafia harshly insisted she put over other Japanese wrestlers. And since she was under contract, she couldn't leave. She actually suffered a mental, a nervous breakdown, which led to her spending m- months in a sanitarium. Marva would eventually leave wrestling altogether. Uh, she actually became a counselor and wrestled part time. Yeah. How how after her experiences that she would want to help anybody? Yeah, right. Beyond, yeah. That says a lot. Because I mean, I know pro wrestling chews people up, and the interest of helping people afterwards is sometimes the last thing on people's minds. Um, but for her to go that far over the edge, bring herself back, and then dedicate herself to helping people, beyond me, beyond me. 
to kind of round out their careers, Ethel actually, uh, I, th- I think she had the longest and arguably the most successful career. Like 26 years, right? Uh, yeah. She worked for NWA for a lot of her career. Uh, her final years, she spent with Vern Gagne as part of AWA's roster and until she retired in 1976 after a 26-year career in the business. And, God, to climb every hurdle she had, 26 years. Um, her final match was actually against her sister, Marva Scott. So, Babs died of unknown causes in April of 2003. Marva died of cancer in August of the same year. Ethel passed away September 14th of 2018. We're winding down here. What are, I guess, your final thoughts on these three women? I think we covered a lot of ground and and talked about all all corners of everything. Uh, Mostly the South. Like, we could talk about that corner... (laughs) a lot and how difficult and awful that was for these women but like i said just just wrestling in the 50s <laughs> just, just i mean just driving like traveling from town to town in the 50s like that that hurdle alone i don't know if 70 percent of the wrestlers could <laughs> today could go through because i know a lot of wrestlers today that don't have cars so i don't know how you were making making towns without physical transportation so, for everything these ladies went through, like I said at the beginning, if nothing else, I hope this podcast is just another thing that pops up when somebody hears Ethel, Babs, and Marva's name, that they're like, oh, I want to know more about them. And then I hope they um, be like, oh, somebody did a podcast on them. Oh, somebody wrote a news article. Oh, somebody did a documentary on them. And, and I feel like there should be a lot more about them there should be there should be a netflix show there should be a hulu there should be a book. amazon prime show about the struggles that these women went through and it should be highlighted more in more artistic avenues uh more more so and and hopefully this podcast is just part of just putting them out there saying their name more so people know and the universe knows and most specifically hopefully their spirits wherever they may floating around in the world that people are thinking about them and their dedication their sacrifices will not go unnoticed definitely not by anybody in this room i date a woman of color we're both stand-up comedians and i think now today in 2019 uh, it's 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 needed to be in in our industry at least to be they they want a person of color they want a person of a different sexuality they need it because there's this hole of where it's just been thousand years of jerry seinfelds you know like it's just been straight white guys but spencer gets to go out every single night and just be a stand-up comedian and it's because of sacrifices like these three that she can do that and you know it's sacrifices of millions and i think of black women in this country in general their most marginalized group in history because you know we think of martin luther king or jackie robinson malcolm you know anyone what are their wives names you know how many people know who they even are you know maybe martin luther king you know his wife's name it's uh it's important to remember people like Ethel Johnson, Babs Wingo, Marva Scott, because they did this, and it's because of them that Sasha Banks gets to come out at WrestleMania, that she could win titles, that, you know, uh, Ember Moon has a spot on the roster, Nia Jax, even though she's terrible. 
Uh, <laughs> it's like I never, I don't have that. Uh, the closest I have is Lenny Bruce, like going to prison for saying shit in public. Like that's not a struggle, really. I mean, I appreciate it. Lenny Bruce literally died because of what he went through. I think. Uh, just so I can get on this podcast and say dick. And I appreciate that, but it is not a struggle comparable to what black people and especially black women have went through in this country. And I think people should appreciate it. I think there's so much bigotry and hatred out there. So many people listening to this will probably call us all snowflakes and libtards and all this stuff. And if if you you made it this far. (laughs) (laughs) If... If you can't listen to this, the, 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 the struggles that these women went through and the courage that they had, the, the straight-up damn courage and bravery of something that they cared about and they wanted to do to provide for people that they loved, if you can't identify with that and you still look at it and you and you just say, oh, they were just bitching, they were just complaining, it's like, then you are just trash and you do not understand what it means to be a human being and who will strive to better themselves and the people they love. If you can't hear a story about someone and identify, then I don't know what the hell you're doing. I will just close on this. If you never get to see the documentary, hopefully you do. But uh, Ethel talks about early in her career, they would talk. she would talk about she would just get a medicine ball thrown right at her stomach. She would just slam this medicine ball in it and they would it would strengthen her tummy up. And uh, she's talking about when she was having her kids. And she says, I knew I was strong in my stomach because when I had my children, the doctor said all he had to do was stand there with a catcher's mitt. (laughs) And that was the best damn laugh and one of the funniest things I'd heard watching that documentary. And again, we can't thank Chris Brene enough. Thank you, Chris. uh, Couldn't have done this episode. Literally could not have done this episode without him giving us access. Everything literally. I've I've said that before many times to people like, oh, man, I couldn't have done this without you. (laughs) No, this is the most I've ever (laughs) meant that in my entire life. We couldn't have done this without you, Chris. And uh, Chris also, uh, comedian-wise, and Nick didn't know this, you might not. He co-wrote a book with, uh, oh, God, I forget his name. Oh, uh, sorry, Raymond Lambert who was the owner of All Jokes Aside, which was the most famous all-black comedy club in Chicago. And there's a documentary about it, a book. I'm going to buy the damn book because it sounds amazing. And there's a documentary that sounds it's amazing. Thank you, Chris. I'm going to buy your damn book. This is Tim Bell Pod. We have a Patreon. If you would like to help us keep doing episodes, please donate to it. We're at Tim Bell Pod on all the social medias. Check out TimBellPod.com. Shout out to Six Squirrel Studios. I am Nicolessa on all the social medias. Jay Trotter 27 on Twitter is Micah and Man Scout Manning to find Jake on all the social medias. Scoot. I, I kind of <laughs> want to end it on Scoot. One, two, three, Scoot. Scoot. Scoot, scoot away. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>